because uh, in all truth, a couple weeks ago, uh, about four or five weeks ago, when I got the, uh, when I was invited to preach here this morning and I was giving the assignment, I thought, oh my gosh, what if, what if there are kids in the room? I, I got to think about this thing and think this thing through. Scott put his hand right on my chest, just like a bouncer at a, at a, at a, at a nightclub. You know? He just kind of said, you don't have to pick anything. You'll preach what God tells you to preach. And I was like, oh, this is real. Okay. I mean, it was, it was very, and it hadn't been real before, but it was very real in that moment. Like, this is an enormous, an enormous responsibility, which I clearly was not yet fully prepared until. Um, so that's what I did. So that leads me to the first point is there's a point in every life where you have to decide, do you, uh, do you know about God or do you know God? Period. Right? The only God, the one and true living God, you have to ask yourself that question. And so for the last week and a half, I've put my head down. I've dug in. I have prayed constantly, uh, constantly for the Holy Spirit to guide my pen in preparing this message. And, uh, and, and to only pen exactly what I believe that God wanted you to hear, that I prayed for him to tell me exactly what he wanted you to hear. And I believe in my heart that the following are those notes from that prayerful conversation over the course of five or ten days. So the scripture that got read first this morning, and it'll be kind of the basis of where we'll start, where we'll return to in the end, is the rich man and Lazarus. So there's two men of whom religious tradition we don't fully know about. But we do know where they landed when they died. One was carried by angels to Abraham's side, and the other one wasn't. The other one was let off his form. And there's a chasm between them, and it leads you to acknowledge that these post-death arrangements, or if anything, are permanent. And now there is a whole sermon series, I'm sure, that we could go through with the passage of this alone. Uh, but this morning, I was only led to focus on one theme, and that is as the rich man goes to have Lazarus to go and do his bidding. Go tell my family. Go tell them what's here. Warn them about the truth of what's about to happen to all of them. It's a bit of bad news, right? You had Moses, you had the prophets, I told them, and they all told you. And you won't believe it even if we send somebody from this side of the transaction. And, uh, and the regret, I can only imagine, sets in. Because he loves his, his family, and now he has to live with all of that. And so as we dive in this morning, know surely that as you live now, you will also expire. You'll pass away. And upon arriving in eternity, you'll look back. You will look back and see that there were all kinds of road signs called um, that were always pointing you in the right direction from the time that you were born until the time in which you say goodbye. They have always been. They will always be there. And as we move forward now, ask yourself all along up until this point being prologue, this moment, and then moving forward, are my eyes closed or are they open? Or are they open? Speaking of opening, uh, this morning is going to feel more like a little Bible study. Um, and so we're going to open with a portion called Road Signs. The uh, title of the sermon is Road Signs Regeneration and RSVP. And so the road signs start in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. If you want to turn there, we've already met uh, the first player in our production this morning, John the Baptist. Verse 1, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19. So immediately following the glorious prologue of the Gospel of John, we meet the first, we're introduced to the first 
prophet that there's been in 400 years, in almost 400 years in Israel. And in verse 19, John is being pressed by the Jewish priests, and they say, and it, it reads, it is, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not him either. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, if you're not all of those, who are you? We need to give an answer for those who sent us. And what do you say about yourself? His response immediately is, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. We have the Jewish priests looking at this guy, and they're not real sure what to make of But why? Well, let me start this morning by helping understand what they were probably not thinking, okay? So to do this, we've got to get the picture right. John is a man who is wild-looking, and the style of his language is unfettered, and it's convicting. This isn't a man that's clean and polished and wearing $200 sneakers, right? He's dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt, and he's eating wild honey and locusts. He's eating bugs, y'all. This is what this is what we're looking at, right? And so he's dressed in tatters, and he's dirty, and he's probably got some honey in his beard, you know? And it's not a joke. It's quite a serious thing I want to approach there, but it's more. If you have one a beard for 10 seconds, you know stuff gets caught in there. You know it does. Especially something like honey. And the worst part is nobody probably loved him enough to even tell him. So now he's walking around dressed like a camel, eating bugs with honey in his beard. But, but, looks can be deceived. You'll find out. And those quick to judge who didn't know any better, they might take him for a homeless drifter or uh, some kind of crazy person just talking and being annoying and lost. But not the priesthood. Not the Jewish elite. You see, to them, this might have been oddly, though eerily familiar looking, as an individual. Road signs. Let me start with a question to everybody in the room. Everybody sitting here, everybody on the internet. By show of hands, have anybody met George Washington in person? Anybody? No? Didn't grow up in the same neighborhood. Nobody has a sister that maybe graduated with his cousin or something. <laughs> Didn't bump carts at a Walmart, nothing. No George Washington. But I bet you'd know him to see him. I bet you'd pick him out immediately. I bet you we could find a nine-year-old down the hall that could pick George Washington out of a crowd if one walked through that door. How is that possible? He's been dead for 200 years. How is that possible? It's because we instantly would recognize his likeness because of what's been in our brain in our own history. We've had this since we were children. Since we were children. So in that light, now we have the Jews standing there. John the Baptist rolls up onto the scene. Why would they recognize him based on their own history? Well, about 100 years after the reign of King David, in the 870s, this is before Christ, obviously, the United Kingdom of Israel separated Judah and the Northern Kingdom. And uh, there was a guy named Ahab. He was the king of the Northern Kingdom. He marries a woman named Jezebel. You know the story. They not only worship the pagan god Baal, but as we read in 1 Kings, Ahab, as a man, as a king, as a leader of Israel, did more to provoke God the God of Israel to more anger than all of the other kings. This is not a good guy. This is not, he's wicked and rebellious. But like God has done before, he did not address Ahab directly. Right? Like Pharaoh before, Ahab got a visit from a prophet of God. This 
prophet did not choose to be God's messenger. God chose him for the job. And upon receiving the call, the prophet Elijah, that's Ishmael, did not refuse his appointment. He accepted. He became an immediate conduit from God for the judgment of a wicked nation. Elijah. Think about this for a second. It had to be hard to make friends as an Old Testament prophet. Your job was to rebuke and chastise a wicked people, to pronounce judgment. Doom is coming. These aren't party starters. Right? But this is what the job was. This is who Elijah was. It had to be hard. It's always doom. Get their salvation too, but that was normally for people that were a somebody else people, for a down-the-road people. But that's how prophetic ministry works. Or prophetic ministry, I'm sorry, works. The forthcoming acts of judgment, followed by forthcoming acts of deliverance. Judgment and deliverance, judgment and deliverance. Many times judgment was even God filing suit against his own people violating their covenant with him, as with was the situation uh, with Ahab's Israel. But listen, in the case of Elijah's first proclamation, he announced judgment on the land so that it would not reign at all for years. For years. Before we just breeze on through and say, well, that's how God rolled in the Old Testament from the comfort of our little cushion seats here, sit on that and think about that for a second. Watch the news. See how much damage a storm can do in two or three days. Maybe something we've all had exposure to. You ever lost power in your house before? An hour, a couple hours, a day, three days max? It's a problem. It's a serious problem. These people didn't have rainwater for years. God's judgment is serious. It's serious business. So when Elijah spoke, he didn't speak what Elijah thought. He spoke with the authority of the only true God. Elijah, his name literally means my God is Yahweh. It literally means my God is the only God and no other gods. That was the essence of his ministry. He was also a prolific miracle man. By the hand of God, he raised a son from the dead. He defeated almost a thousand prophets on Mount Carmel. So he's got all of this power by the hand of God, but he's also a man who was sought after for death by Ahab and Jezebel. He feared greatly. But his faith didn't waver, even to the point of rebuking the king himself. So the years down the road, in the chapter of 2 Kings, a context has arisen, right, where the new king, there's a new king in the northern kingdom, it's years later, it's Ahaziah. He's sick, and then he has an accident, he falls through the lattice, he falls off his roof, he sends his men to inquire of a pagan god. As to the likelihood of his full recovery, is that's what you did if you were a pagan king, right? So there's this king. Rehab, I mean, uh, there's this king, Ahaziah. He's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. He's sick. He has an accident. He gets his guys together. Go off. Ask Baal if I'm going to pull through this thing or not. So they go, but they don't reach their destination. On their way, they're confronted by another man, a prophet, who informs them that the king is as good as dead. As good as dead. So they get back, and when the king hears this, he's fuming angry. He begins to send off a series of 50 soldiers at a time to take care of this guy. Right? But via the hand of God, the man defeats all of them. The prophet defeats them all until at least the last set of 50 realize what's going on, and they, they decide better. So who was this not-so-mysterious man? Who is the man who prophetically condemned the king of Israel's history to die and then defeated a hundred more men on a mountaintop? Well, when the king's guard gets back and the prophets and asks about the prophet's message, the king gets his answer. He asks him in 2 Kings 1. 
What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his name was Elijah. Now, 800 years later, the religious elite are walking around in their flowing robes and their broad phylacteries on their head, and they run into the same-looking guy wearing camel hair and a leather belt, and he's shouting about repentance and the coming judgment. Who do you think they thought this guy was? It's George Washington. It's Elijah. They, they're looking at him, right? And they may have also been scratching their heads because they remembered another prophet, Malachi. Listen to what the last recorded words of God to his people were from Malachi. Remember we said John the Baptist was the first person 400 years later. Malachi was the last guy to speak 400 years prior to silence. In Malachi 4, 1 through 6. <laughs> For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stolen. The day that's coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's important for later. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him to order for all of Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. They're waiting for Elijah, the Pharisees. They recognize him. They don't know who this guy is. Modern-day Judaism, still waiting for Elijah. So this is, there's a coherence here that doesn't ever go away. And at the time, they may have been thinking John the Baptist might not necessarily be Elijah reincarnated, but he sure dressed like him. And he sure sounds like him. He looks like a prophet of the Old Testament. And he's preaching like a prophet of the Old Testament. And then the Jewish priest pressed him, well, who are you? All he says is, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. It's like a broken record. Like you're not hearing. This is where the plot thickens, because they also do with that. There's a massive connection, massive, between the prophecy of Isaiah and the prophet that was John the Baptist. See, Isaiah was alive 700 years before John the Baptist, 700 years before Christ. Remember when we said how prophetic ministry worked? There were prophecy of forthcoming acts of judgment. Then there were followed by prophecy of forthcoming acts of redemption and reconciliation. Well, regarding judgment on Israel, Isaiah was God's criminal lawyer. Right? He was covenant prosecutor numero uno. That's Isaiah. The first 35 chapters of his book, he's a major prophet. There's a lot of chapters. Half of it is about judgment. Israel, Judah, Judah. And his vision and calling to be a prophet are recorded in chapter 6. And we all know that story. And it's, but, but in his calling, the news that he gets from God when he volunteers is basically the worst news that you could ever get as a volunteer new hire. Right? So after he, he says, um, after he sees the great vision in Isaiah 6, verses 8 and 10, Isaiah said, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. He sees the vision of God in front of him, is compelled 
has received forgiveness and says, I'm here, send me. God says, great, glad you said it. In verse 9, he says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Remember the rich man in Hades who said, if I could just have some information from this side of heaven to send back to that side of people on sinful earth, they could really use it. And what did the angel of the Lord say to him? We already sent that word. I gave it to Isaiah, and he saw it, and he told you, and you still didn't get it then. And if you need further summary, Isaiah's pumped. He's been freely forgiven. He's seen behind the green curtain of Oz. It's the holy God in all of his glory. And he says, I'll go. Let's be a team. I'm your guy. Send me out there. But the message was this. Go and tell my people they're all doomed. That's what you're going to tell them. And then in my own sovereignty, I'm going to close their eyes, and I'm going to close their ears, and then I'm going to dull their hearts. And then when you go out and say it, they're not going to understand what you're saying. Isn't that great? I'm going to make their heart, heart callous, and they'll never repent, and they'll never recover. And then he's like, go out there and make it happen. Think about that. That's what he volunteered for, but that's not what he thought he was volunteering for, perhaps. And he says, well, wait, what? Remember, this is a nation and a people to whom Isaiah also belongs. He's an aristocrat of Israel. He didn't come from the wilderness. He didn't come from the desert. He's going to go on to serve in the royal court of kings. So he has some questions about the length, maybe about the severity. Of, wait, wait, wait. This is all going to happen. Well, how long? What's going to happen? And then it gets worse. In verse 11, God says, Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And God says, well, let me tell you, until cities lie waste." Inhabits, in houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent will remain in it, it'll be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak. The stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is in its stump. Okay, and God's telling him it's going to be bad. And it's not going to be just once, it's going to be bad. And there are going to be several oracles of judgment that are going to devastate the land and devastate the people, but not all of the people. Not all of the people. God's going to keep for himself a remnant. Right? A remnant that will turn from their sin and return to him. He's going to cut the whole tree down, all of it, except for the stump. That's what he said. God's people, God's people that he chooses aren't found in the quantity of branches and limbs and thousands and thousands of leaves. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the seed, the seed of promise, all the way from back in Genesis 3, it's in the stump. We don't need everybody. I'm not going to choose everybody. God's telling Isaiah to tell his people, listen, I'm going to judge you because you violated our covenant. You're going to be exiled to Babylon in the future, but there will be a time when the punishment will end. I will return, and I will have mercy on you, and I will save you, and I will bring you back to me. So fast forward to, to chapter 40, Isaiah, right? It's 100 plus years later. People are now in exile. People are, and there were 
woes of judgment beforehand. But now he's talking to a specific set of people, the cream of the crop of Israel at the time, kings and royalty. They're taken to Babylon, and now it's at the end of their exile. And now Isaiah is talking to those people, only he's saying it 150 plus years previous, right? And what he's telling them is, listen, okay, you've endured all this. We've drug you out of town. This has been terrible. This has been awful beyond imagination, but it's over. The time of warfare and captivity is over. Their iniquity has been forgiven, and it's time. I'm fulfilling my act of restoration. I'm going to bring you back. And what does Isaiah 40 read? A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and the, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken and seen. Right. Remember the curse that God issued at the onset of Isaiah's call? Dull their eyes, dull their hearts, dull their ears so that they won't see it. Then all the judgment happens, and then it's over. There's a beginning. There was a middle. Now it's the end. God lifts the curse opens their eyes, open their ears, and they can hear. And now they'll turn back to him, and he will do the saving. Got it? This is the same cry of John the Baptist from Matthew 3 when Scott read it. He, he, he's there, he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he can see the look on their face. And is, he, does he, uh, does, is he a coward? Does he bend? Does he break? No! He gives them Isaiah. You brood of vipers, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath? Be bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from deep stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's saying to them, it's like you didn't even read Isaiah. These are the Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't you remember any of the prophets at all? Listen to this in verse 10. John the Baptist. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is at the root of the trees. Trees coming down, what? Stumps to remain. This is John the Baptist proclaiming the language of Isaiah. And that's the judgment threat of God to all people, federal Israel included. There's this other thing with Isaiah and John the Baptist that's it's a matter of time. Not time like a quarter after ten, but time along the timeline working toward the end. You see, Scripture records thousands of years of God saving his people from his own wrath temporarily here on earth. Judge this group of people, we save this group of people. Rinse and repeat, because that was the plan. But, but God's long-term plan of salvation isn't confined to our own moral citizenship here. There's an eschatological element and a promise for the remnant. But that promise was never going to be fulfilled by satisfying God's wrath with the, bull, with the blood of bulls and goats of the old covenant. Right? The life is in the blood. Yes, the life is in the blood. But the blood of animals was what? It was only a temporary road sign pointing forward to their new covenant, right? where there would be a once-for-all sacrifice. So we look again to the prophet Isaiah. Because while this book was wildly sobering with judgment, it's also one of the most frequently quoted books in the New Testament because it gives a rich description of the 
promised Messiah, an anointed Savior, that would come to save God's people, not temporally, but forever. <coughs> Go with me to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. You know this. Acts of judgment, acts of salvation. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. A covenant and a name. Come with me to Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. You've heard this plenty of times as well. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace that will be no end. It means his kingdom will not be temporal, it will be an eternal one. Follow me finally to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Isaiah is saying, The Lord will give you a child. He will inevitably be the everlasting king. Something must happen first in order to take care of all of that. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he would be, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah's telling Israel that God would provide the unblemished lamb. And that once he provides the unblemished lamb, he'll proceed to crush him to save his people. For the brothers and sisters out there that say, well, all that talks about somebody else because I'm a pretty good person. I'm going to be just fine. Paul takes care of that in Romans 3. Quotes the psalmist. Psalm 14. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. So it's this lamb. It's this lamb from Isaiah. <clears throat> it's this lamb. Centuries later, this is who John the Baptist sees. We're back in John 1. The next day, John sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold the Lamb of God. It's a proclamation. All that, all of that, from all of our history, this is it. This is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So where Isaiah was prophesying about future events, John is proclaiming it is fulfilled. It's here. Just like the passage of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Jesus didn't approach John the Baptist in any kind of grand manner. Right? There was no light show. There's no glorious entry. He walked to him in his own humiliation as a man. Pharisees and Sadducees saw the guy. They thought he was a heretic. John looked upon the same man, Messiah the carpenter, but with eyes open and with a new heart. And he had a heart to receive and confess who Jesus Christ is. And this is where we're going to shift to regeneration. Because that cannot happen without regeneration. Go with me to John chapter 3. Scott read it earlier. Pastor Scott read it. John chapter 3, there was another Pharisee who maybe wasn't so sure about Jesus. He was, wasn't so sure there wasn't more to him. 
and her naked peeps. In terms of screen time in the grand movie, he only had a cameo appearance. He's only mentioned briefly in John's Gospel. However, as a member of the ruling religious body, he was an educated man. And though the Gospel of John up until this point, this is early in, in John's Gospel, right? He's been selective about the miracles and the works that Jesus may have done up until this point. Nicodemus knew enough, and he saw enough, and he heard enough to know that I can't just dismiss this Jesus. Now, before this goes any further, the one thing that you have to appreciate about Jesus uh, is that he's the brand ambassador for non-secular, especially in this regard. He's the greatest improvisational jazz player of all time. Somebody comes to him, they start to beat, right? And then Jesus goes off and starts to riff and parable and metaphor and brings the house down. And he was phenomenal at it. And either you got it or you didn't. And bless your heart if you didn't get it, because he wasn't going to pull out a dry erase board and outlay it for you with the X's and O's. You just had to sit in the middle of it. Take our guy Nicodemus, for example, John 3. Nicodemus is coming unarmed. You're maybe truly interested in Jesus. He comes at night, calls a rabbi, confesses, hey, hey, we, we know that Jesus, you are certainly a man who surely is authenticated by God. God is surely with you because of all of these wonders that you've done. And then Jesus gets up and he kind of walks over to him tenderly and he embraces him and says, thank you, brother. Is that what happened? No! <clears throat> Jesus blasts him right out of the gate. Boom. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus may have been a little flabbergasted, but how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think it's safe to say that Nicodemus wasn't actually considering biological rebirth at this point. Uh, but he was still very much in the dark about what Jesus had just shouted to him through his words. And oddly enough, Nicodemus' education, right? his historical training, where he thought was his strong suit coming into this discourse, to this dynamic, is only going to serve to undo him as the dialogue continues. And just as a framework of this conversation, maybe think of Nicodemus thinking like the rich man from, from Mark 10 and also from Luke, right? He comes to him, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Right? Or being born again? All right, I don't really get all of it. But if you tell me what it is, just tell me what to do. And how do I, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, no problem. Let me explain it to you, chapter and verse, like a child. No, he doesn't. He gives him again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which was born of the flesh is flesh. And listen, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Like, come on, man, you're a Pharisee. What part of this aren't you picking up on? And before Nicodemus could even get another word in it's almost like Jesus says, listen, just don't marvel that I said these things. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everybody who is born of the Spirit. In Genesis chapter 2, you don't have to go there. Just one quick stop. When God first creates man and woman, uh, Genesis 2, uh, chapter 6. Chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then man became a living creature. Know what? Everybody remembers that? God breathes in, makes him out of the dust of the earth, breathes life in him, and only when God breathes life in him, he becomes a 
pig. No, here we are, Nicodemus. He's been born once. Jesus is talking about being born again. Nicodemus isn't picking up what he's putting down. So let's have a, let's get rid of some of the English that's here, and let's substitute in the Greek as it was written. It says, you must be born again, the wind blows. The same word for wind at the beginning of verse 8 is the same word for spirit at the end of verse 8. It's not wind and spirit, it's pneuma. Pneuma is the word for spirit, it's the Greek word for spirit. It's this idea of like this rushing wind from Pentecost, same word, spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? And then the word for blows is nepo. And it could be to breathe or to, to blow, to expire wind, right? So let's go back and read it again. Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The spirit breathes where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. This is how it works with everyone who's born in the spirit. So what Jesus is really saying is that the spirit, the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, it breathes life into whomever it wants. You don't get to pick. But our hero, Nicodemus, is still lost. Just right past it. And Nicodemus says to him, well, how can these things be? And Jesus, I can only imagine that, that he feels the same way that he might have felt in Luke's Gospel in chapter 19. It's the only place it's recorded. He's lamenting over Israel. They, they're not getting it. Luke 19, 41 and 42 reads, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. The people in the context that Jesus is speaking of didn't realize their deepest need. They didn't know why Jesus was really there. And now he's laying it out for one of their finest, Nicodemus. And he's just not getting it. Jesus answers him in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. He's having a moment like John the Baptist asking the Pharisees if they've ever read Isaiah. But in this case with Ezekiel, I'm sorry. In this case with Nicodemus, he's talking about Ezekiel. Listen to this brief passage from Ezekiel 36. If you want to go there, you may. Starting in verse 22. This is what God is saying to Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a young man, 25, 30-year-old prophet. And he's, he's living amongst the exiles in Babylon. Life is bad. They're in exile. They've been taken as slaves, and he's there. And God is saying, therefore, to Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore, Ezekiel, tell the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. With regard to regeneration, know that this sentiment, the people will know that I am God for my name's sake, is 60 times in the book of Ezekiel. It's clear. Follow me in verse 24. I'm going to accentuate the eyes so that you can understand further. God continues. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And 
from your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. There's a lot of eyes in zero. You did this for yourselves, for those people who scored. To Ezekiel, yes, God is laying out his plan to that prophet in exile about how God himself, through no help of man, is going to bring back the remnant that he chooses for himself. Okay, But it's for his own namesake. But God isn't just talking about right then Israel. He's talking about forward uh, events. Uh, he's talking about his eternal remnant, the true Israel. The remnant that was saved by the new covenant, the everlasting covenant. It's the same new covenant from Jeremiah 31. I'll write my law in their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. For those of you who weren't alive during the Old Testament but are with me here this morning, you've heard these words of the same new covenant the same from Ezekiel, the same from uh, from Jeremiah. It's the same covenant of our Lord at the supper. And he took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them. This is my body, which I'm giving for you. This is going to be the transactional sacrifice of the new covenant. Ain't no bulls here. Ain't no goats here. It's me, once and for all. Do this in remembrance of that. And then likewise, after the cup. This cup has been poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here's poor Nicodemus. Poor P-O-O-R Nicodemus. Doesn't even know how bankrupt he is. He's getting taken to school by a man he's never met. And all the sacrifice of his time and study in the world becoming a Pharisee couldn't even enable him to recognize the God that he had been serving for his entire adult life was sitting right in front of him. What do we do with that? Well, you get invited to a party, you have to what? RSVP. Listen, church, I'll close it. If you've heard anything this morning, I don't mind yelling and screaming. Odysseys through the Old Testament. Hear this. God is sovereignly in command. Unmeetable expectations. If you violate his law, it will bring judgment. Nothing anyone can say or do or feel to change any of that. But in his mercy, there's also an outpouring of grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that anybody can say or do or feel to change that. So here I am in front of you this morning from Acts chapter 3, a love's verse. I have no silver or gold for what I have. God gave his only son, Jesus the Christ, to live a perfect life, die in your law place on the cross, save you for himself. Period. This is the same truth as it was then, as now, and it will always be. The road signs of the prophets, they were not posted in vain. They were not posted because God had nothing else to talk about. You read them, heed them, there's direction there. But it's not only judgment, you also have to celebrate the promise of salvation that was also prophesied.
the salvation that no one deserves, but that is freely given. So for the rich man in the room, for to uh, for to everyone, what must you do to inherit eternal life? I'll leave you with that. Two men went up into the temple to pray. This is Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I can. But the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself 